Is there actually irrefutable proof for the existence of God? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Can we prove that the God of the Bible actually exists? Is there something that we can touch or see or comprehend the reality of which will prove the existence of God? In a previous episode, we asked whether or not the Bible is God's true and perfect word. And while there's plenty of evidence to back up such a claim, it ultimately comes down to just a single leap of faith, the only one you will ever need to take. Because being sure that the Bible is true and perfect is not a matter of evidence or being convinced of it through logic and reason, but is first and foremost a faith decision, of being convinced of it because you believe. Well, today I want to show you the opposite of that, and instead of asking you to simply have faith that God exists, I'm going to offer you what I believe is irrefutable proof that he does. It requires no faith whatsoever to see, and it is objectively observable, tangible, and quantifiable. While I don't believe that this is the only measurable evidence of God, I do believe it's the most undeniable. And if you don't already believe in the God of the Bible, or if you're sometimes unsure that he's there, then hopefully this will go a long way to laying any doubts to rest. Now, when we usually think about proof for the existence of God, what we often come up with is evidence that is subjective in nature, something based on our own experience. So, for example, we point to such things as answered prayers, where we testify that we've prayed to God and the result was exactly what we prayed for. But how do we prove that the answer had come from God? Could it not just be coincidence or happenstance? Are we just cherry-picking from the times that we received what we asked for? Then there's miracles from times when we were sick and the doctors had no idea how we got better, and the scans and tests that previously showed disease are now clear. You and I can 1,000% believe that this was a legitimate healing from God. But how do we prove it? All we can show is that we were sick before and now we're better. Sometimes we also turn to Bible prophecy to prove the existence of God, where we can easily see the prophecy in the text and then observe the fulfillment of it before our eyes. But then someone else can look at the same text and find the fulfillment debatable. As it is with all subjective or circumstantial forms of evidence, it mounts up, but it doesn't definitively prove that God has fulfilled that specific prophecy. I think on the subjective side of the scale, the evidence that carries the most weight, the thing that touches most people universally, is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, when he says, That which is known of God is evident among men, for God made it evident to them. For from the creation of the world, the invisible things of him, being understood by way of the visible things that have been made, are plainly seen, both as eternal power and divine nature, so that men are without excuse. In other words, God made his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, evident to us by making them plainly seen in the visible things he made, namely creation. 
So when we look at the incredible and intricate design of plants and animals, mountains and seas, the sky, the stars, even ourselves, then we should be able to plainly see God's creative hand. It should be obvious to anyone with five senses that nothing is here by accident or chance, but that a divine creator formed all things, and that very creation shouts of his power and nature. But when we look at creation, even though we're without excuse when we don't see God in it, there's still a subjective element for the doubting mind. Someone could even accept the idea that everything was made by a divine designer, but how can we prove that that creator is the God of the Bible? So whether the evidence is of a personal nature like answered prayers or miracles or more external such as prophecy or creation, these evidences for the existence of God are, for many people, still subjective and debatable. Foreknowledge and demonstrations of power aren't necessarily obvious measures of proof. So what we need then is something that's impartial and verifiable, something that when you see it and understand what it is, the only reasonable conclusion you can draw is that God does indeed exist. And we find that measurable objective evidence in the continued existence of none other than the people of Israel, the Jewish people. So basically, here's what I'm going to prove. The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, made promises to his people. And since God promised to preserve the Jewish people forever, and despite our 3,500-year persecution-plagued history, we are still here, then that proves that not only does the God of the Bible exist, but that he is continuing even now to keep his promise to Israel. Okay, here we go. Let's start by getting our terms straight. When I say Israel, and I'll be dealing with this in more detail in a later teaching, I'm not referring to the nation-state in the Middle East. I'm talking about the Jewish people worldwide. When we read the New Covenant scriptures especially, we see that as of the first century, the terms Jew and Israel were used synonymously. So that's how I'm going to use them. And as for Israel's history of persecution, that's verifiable from both biblical history, starting with our slavery in Egypt, up through the first century occupation of the land of Israel by Rome, as well as extra-biblical history, not the least of which were Israel's tyrannical oppression by the Greeks in the second century BC, and of course, the Holocaust in the 20th century. To say nothing of all the pogroms and expulsions in between, our persecution by the Christian church, the continued threat today against the nation-state of Israel by its Middle Eastern neighbors, and the abounding anti-Semitism on college campuses, in the political realm, and increasingly everywhere else, leaving Jews to, as usual, assimilate, hide our identity, or endure whatever hate comes our way. Now, obviously, I can't document all that for you right now, but even if you reject the idea of modern anti-Semitism or anti-Israel sentiment, there's an overabundance of historical evidence that points to a Jewish history of a people often, if not always, under threat of extinction. And that's all you need to understand to comprehend how unbelievable it is that we're still here. Now, as followers of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, who is without a doubt the central and climactic figure of our faith, we too easily forget that without Israel, without the Jewish people, our entire faith story unravels. God's plan for reconciling all people groups to himself hinges on his promise to the people of Israel a promise that is thoroughly embedded in the scriptures from beginning to end. And we can start 
in Leviticus chapter 26, where Moses has been forecasting Israel's inevitable, repeated disobedience to God. And he says to them in verses 43 and 44, they will receive their punishment because they had rejected my judgments and their soul had loathed my statutes. And yet even this, in their being in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I loathe them so as to finish them and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord, their God. So Moses speaks at length about how Israel will turn away from God and the judgment that will come upon them as a nation when they do so. But here, God is establishing something absolutely remarkable with his people, that no matter how much they reject what he says or how much they loathe what he wants them to do, he will not reject or loathe them in return to such an extent that he finishes them or breaks his covenant with them. One way or another, despite any punishment God administers, he promises to always preserve Israel and to not break his covenant with them. And he promises to do this for one simple reason, for I am the Lord their God. So this is the beginning of God's specific promise to always preserve his people. He will not reject Israel or break his covenant with them because he is Israel's God, because they are his. With regard to the covenant then, Moses also tells us that God is faithful. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, he says that, you will know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God guarding the covenant. And in Deuteronomy 31, 6, as the people are preparing to enter the promised land, Moses assures them that, The Lord your God is he who is going with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. So in addition to God saying that he won't break his covenant with Israel, he ties his own fidelity to the covenant to his own faithfulness. God's inherently faithful character requires him to keep it. So in order to maintain the covenant, he will therefore be faithful to do what he says he will do. And he will do it without failing or forsaking Israel. This doesn't mean that God will never punish Israel or leave her to her own devices. On the contrary, the covenant includes provisions for Israel's punishment as well as her blessings. What it means is that he will always abide by the terms of the covenant, which includes his always remaining faithful to keep it. So God has promised to not reject his people and to not break his covenant because he is Israel's God and his faithfulness prevents him from failing or forsaking her. Fast forward now about five and a half centuries to 2 Kings chapter 8. Will we still find God keeping his word to his people? To set the stage, David had been only the second man who had ever been anointed king of Israel. He was Israel's quintessential king, a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 14. But he was succeeded by both good and evil kings leading to the secession of a large portion of the nation, dividing the kingdom while David's line continued to reign over the smaller kingdom of Judah. So the nation of Israel was split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, the north would be taken captive by a foreign power, and all that would remain of the nation of Israel would be Judah. So here in 2 Kings chapter 8, five generations after David, Judah's king had been doing evil in the sight of God. And it says in verse 19 that despite this and the ongoing cycle that preceded it, Adonai, the Lord, 
was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, as he promised to him to give to him a lamp to his sons always. This is referencing back to 1 Kings 11, where God first mentions the concept of a lamp for David that would always burn before him in Jerusalem. What this means is that God had promised to preserve David's line, that only those who are descendant from David would sit on the throne of Judah. But more to the point, we're now also seeing the development of God's fidelity toward Israel with the inclusion of the concept of always. God's promise to David would be kept, but only for the duration of always. And we're told here why God would do this, because he was unwilling to destroy Judah. God chose to preserve Israel's remnant through David, that despite whatever the northern kingdom had done or whatever David's evil descendants might do, God would not destroy Judah, but safeguard Israel's future through her. And so more than five centuries after Moses, God was still keeping his covenant with Israel by giving David's descendants a kingship in Judah always. And David completely understood all this. He knew that Israel was a unique people with a unique purpose and that their continuation as a people was directly related to who their God was. Listen to how David praises God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 22 through 26, after God promises him an eternal throne. Therefore, you are great, Adonai Elohim, Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. And who is as your people, as Israel, one nation in the earth, whom God has gone to redeem to himself for a people, and to make for himself a name? And you establish to yourself your people Israel to you for a people forever. And you, Adonai, had become their God. And now, Adonai Elohim, establish forever the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house to do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever. So David is praising God, saying that there is no one like him or beside him. And then he acknowledges that there is also no other people like the people of Israel, that of all the nations of the earth, God chose just this one people group, Israel, to redeem for himself. And why did God choose Israel? Well, according to David, it was to make for himself a name. In other words, God put his own name at stake, his reputation when he tied it to the people of Israel. You get that? God married his reputation to the fate of the Jewish people so that whatever happens to them reflects upon him. So, what bearing do you think that has on the survival of the Jewish people? Well, David speaks to that when he says that God established Israel as a people to and for himself forever the result of which would be the great praise and magnification of God's reputation forever. The destiny of God's people Israel is inseparable from God's name and reputation. What happens to Israel directly impacts God. So if God promises that Israel would be established forever, but then they don't survive, what effect does that have on God's reputation? But if God promises to establish Israel forever and the people do survive, 
What effect does that have on his reputation? The trustworthiness of God's promises, of who he claims to be and what he says he can do, depends upon the destiny of the Jewish people. Now, does all this mean that God loves the Jewish people more than all the other nations? Well, it definitely tells us that God loves the people of Israel, but there's actually an even greater purpose for the Jewish people's preservation, as revealed in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, where the prophet of God says, This is what Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, has said. Not for your sake am I working, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, and I will set apart my great name, and the nations will know that I am Adonai in my being set apart in you before their eyes. And I will take you out of the nations and will gather you out of all the lands and will bring you in to your land. This is absolutely incredible. Look at what God is saying here. He's saying that Israel's preservation is not for their sake, but for the sake of his holy name, his holy reputation. And here is where it gets really mind-blowing. It speaks to the entire salvation story for the world. God is saying he is working to preserve and care for Israel so that his reputation as the set-apart one and only God will be known among the nations. He says that in my being set apart in you, Israel, before the eyes of all the nations, they will know his great name. Do you see what he's saying? God is not preserving Israel just to preserve Israel, and he's not doing it just for the sake of his own reputation. He's using the people of Israel, what happens to them, as a sign to all the nations of the earth that there is a holy, set-apart, powerful, covenant-making, promise-keeping God. And this is exactly what we see in Romans chapter 11 where Paul is explaining how the fate of Israel affects the salvation of the world. Beginning in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I say this then, did God push away his people? Let it not be. Indeed, I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not push away his people whom he knew beforehand. And then a little further down in verses 11, 12, and 15, he says, I say this then, did they, Israel, stumble so that they might fall? Let it not be, but by their misstep, the salvation is come to the nations to arouse Israel to jealousy. And if Israel's misstep is the riches of the world and their diminishing is the riches of the nations, how much more will Israel's fullness be? if not life out of the dead. Paul is saying here that even though Jewish people were rejecting Yeshua as Messiah, according to the context, he did not reject all of Israel. Just as God had promised, he did not push his people away. A remnant would remain. And though Paul admits that the Jewish people had stumbled in this, while their misstep and diminishing meant riches, salvation for the nations— The people of Israel, nevertheless, will not fall. In fact, what will Israel's fullness be? What will their acceptance of the Messiah Yeshua bring, if not life out of the dead, for themselves and for the world? 
No matter how far the Jewish people stumble, no matter what missteps we might make, God will not revoke or regret his choosing and setting apart Israel for this purpose. Because regarding the good news, indeed, they are enemies on account of you, Gentiles. But regarding the chosenness, they are beloved on account of the fathers, for unregretted of are the gifts and the calling of God. Romans chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. If the Jewish people were to cease to exist, if we were to fall beyond recovery, then everything would be lost. The entire foundation of the good news of Yeshua would crumble. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, as he laments the state of his unsaved Jewish people. For I was praying to be accursed, I myself, from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my relatives according to the flesh, who are Israelites, whose is the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the Torah giving, and the temple service, and the promises, also whose are the fathers, and of whom, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed to the ages. Amen. If Israel goes, so goes the adoptionist sons, the covenants, the promises, and worst of all, the Messiah himself, the son of David, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the eternal King of Israel, who is of the Jews according to the flesh. As the Master Yeshua himself says, salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4, verse 22. If Israel goes, so goes salvation. If the Jewish people, of whose are all these things, to whom all these things belong, if we cease to exist, then the God of Israel failed to show his power and keep his promise. He will have provided nothing for the people of the world, and he becomes a figment of our imaginations. In all of this, Paul is echoing what we've already seen with regard to how God ties the fate of the world to Israel. God will not reject Israel. He will not revoke the covenant or regret their calling. And it is through their legacy and lineage that salvation is made possible. What happens to the people of Israel directly affects what happens to the nations of the world, because how God keeps Israel affects how the nations receive God. God promises not only to preserve the Jewish people, but also to maintain us as a distinct people group on the earth so that we can be seen as a sign to all the nations as to who God is. And how much more is that sign illuminated when Jewish people accept the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua? Should the Jewish people ever cease to exist as a recognizable remnant? Should we ever become uncountable? Should we ever obscure ourselves or assimilate to the extent that we become unidentifiable? God is proved a liar. His reputation is destroyed among the nations. But if the Jewish people persevere and survive, if we can always be seen and counted, then the people of Israel stand as proof of both God's character and his existence. The people of Israel have always been at the center of God's plan for salvation and will continue until the end of time to be a living, tangible, objective, quantifiable testimony to the world of who the God of the Bible is 
and that he surely is alive. He will not reject or permanently push away Israel. He will not break his covenant with her. He is faithful to not fail or forsake her, and he has established Israel as his people always and forever for the sake of his name and for the sake of the nations. God has put his name and reputation on the line for Israel, making the Jewish people's destiny inseparable from who he is and what he says he can do. Accept it or not, but the fact that the Jewish people remain today, regardless of our size or spiritual state, despite a history of recurring persecution and ongoing anti-Semitism, despite our global dispersion, outlasting nation after nation, despite having no homeland for thousands of years, the fact that against all odds, we are undeniably and irrefutably still here proves that the God of the Bible is real. If God forgets his promise to his people Israel, then we can all forget about any hope for ourselves. But the good news is that God has a plan through the Messiah of Israel to save and reconcile people from all the nations back to himself. We can trust that he alone is God and that his word is faithful and true because our God preserves the Jewish people just as he promised to do. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI through your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting aright, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.